0: Feeling good and everything Just like a bird in the spring Gotta let it out It's my sweetie, can't you guess Wild about him, I'll confess Does he love me? That's why I shout Everybody loves my baby But my baby don't love nobody but me Nobody but me
1: everybody, and welcome to True Stories of Tinseltown. I have a fabulous guest for you today. He has been on the show six times today. I think this is number six. Woo, woo, I love him. And he is wonderful, and he has a new book, and he is going to talk all about it. It's called Season of the Gods, and it is Robert Matson. Hey, Robert. Hi, Grace. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm so glad to talk to you. I haven't talked to you in so long. No, but we've been in touch. Yeah, we email. we're we email buds. Yeah. But I love the book. Robert sent this to me in, I think I had it in April, and um, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, it's, it's a weird kind of name. <laughs> so tell us why it is called, not that it's a bad name, but why is it called Season of the Gods?
2: You know what? Um, I can't tell you that, really, because, you know, this whole project was so strange in the fact that it wrote itself, and I was just sort of along for the ride, and that includes the title. The title, I always knew it was going to be called Season of the Gods, and then I had to rationalize why it was, because, and really, it's because it's these people in this sort of Olympus, which was Golden Age Hollywood, who who got above themselves, you know, they reached the pinnacle In 1942, um, and they became, they ascended to, like, godhood to produce this perfect motion picture.
1: Tell everybody what the perfect motion picture is.
2: Well, it became Casablanca. It didn't start out to be Casablanca, um, but it became Casablanca. And really, that's the crux of the story. The storyline is how in the world did these people, who were mere mortals, Ascend to this level of storytelling and get it all right. You it's know? wonderful. How, yeah, and I always wondered that. And I think a lot of people wonder, why this one? Why was this one different? How did it happen?
1: And what's funny about it is Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman didn't get it. Like, they were like, what's What's the big deal, right? Didn't Ingrid Bergman's daughter say that she never understood why this was such a, a big deal, this movie?
2: Yeah, um, her problem was more the scripts not being final, so she couldn't Mm -hmm. understand, really Mm -hmm. understand her character arc from beginning to end.
1: And it's so good. And it is a historical novel. And you had to study, study, study. This is all factual. This is all real people based on facts. And you will learn everything behind the scenes, so many great tidbits. But you also wrote your main character is a woman. Right. And you, for me, um, it's sometimes men just don't know how to write a woman, but I bought every one of your characters, everyone. I thought it was really good. How did you do that? Did it just come to you, like you said, like this magical flow?
2: Well, uh, when I was in the corporate world 30 years ago, uh, I was in the same office with this uh, young woman. And she said that I was a, a girl guy. (laughs) I was a guy who girls could relate to and talk to. And I've always felt that way. And so, I mean, I can get in the head of women. And the interesting thing about Irene Lee, who's the main character really in the book, um, is that when I started writing, I thought I was going to be telling the story of the Epstein brothers. But then Irene sort of muscled her way to the forefront because it really was her baby. Casablanca was her baby, not their baby. You know, they came later, but she's the one who saw the potential. And so I had to do a really deep dive in research on Irene Lee. And the only way, I don't know when you want to talk about this, but the only way that her story came to light was because she had a whole other life after Hollywood that was just crazy.
1: She was an interesting one what she was a script reader or what? Because this was a gonna be a stage play, right? What Irene found? Yes. And it never got produced.
2: It never got produced. It hadn't been produced as of when you know it, it was discovered by Irene. Um, and, and that was the first thing Hal Wallace, when you know he's the executive producer at Warner Brothers, she brings him this story and he says and says it's a stage play and he goes, oh, great, what theater? You know who's starring in it? What's the buzz? And she's like, well, nobody, nothing.
1: (laughs) But it worked. And I love the brothers. I love the Epstein brothers. You had the studio heads. You know what I really loved, too, was Ingrid. Where was she? Upstate in the snowstorm with that housewife friend of hers who wanted something more. I loved that storyline, too. Ingrid, out of her element.
2: Yeah. I mean, living to act. That's all she ever wants to do is act. She wants to be other people because— Ingrid kind of, you know, she's unhappy, she's depressed. She wants to take on other personalities, but she's stuck in Rochester, New York in the winter. And, and that's too crazy to make up.
1: I know. So, I couldn't young. believe that because I didn't know that. And I did. I read her biography a long time ago, but I just didn't remember that. And I think, wow, that's true. That's amazing. But she's no housefrau. You know, she gave it a good shot, but she is not that kind of a person. And there's nothing wrong with being a housefrau, everybody. You know what I mean? I'm not knocking housefrows, but and they're not housefrows. Okay. There we go. Anyway, it wasn't her. It just wasn't her.
2: No, it wasn't her, but she gave it the college try. Um, she spent like, you know, 8 weeks maybe giving <laughs> oh, it the college no try. Way. That's all it was. She's she she's all she wants is to hear from David Selznick that he's got a part for her because she's under contract to Selznick and Selznick keeps not calling. And so the snow piles up and Ingrid's depressed and with only this next door neighbor to turn to for conversation. And, and it got really grim. It was torture for her.
1: Did you have a kid? Was Pia born yet?
2: Yes. Yes. She had a you know, she's Pia's whatever, two years old at the time.
1: And she, so she was there. And she, uh, her husband was a doctor, so that's why she went there, because of his work. And um, it was so good how she got out of there. But I did really like that um, dynamic between Ingrid and her neighbor. I thought that was so real and so good. I enjoyed it a lot. But you are. You're sensitive. You're a very sensitive you're, guy. You know, that's you're, why you're that way, I think, that you can write women because they do confide in you and you're easy to talk to, you know, trustworthy. Oh, yeah.
2: I like women. You know, I like women. I just think that uh, women are very much more interesting than men, um, much deeper than men. Not that I have a problem with guys either. I have a lot, most of my best friends are guys. But, but yeah, I, I I like women. I enjoy the thought process of thinking a story from a woman's point of view.
1: Which isn't easy. I, it is I for you. But I mean, I don't think most men can because I have read that and uh, men doing women. And it's not. Believable sometimes. You look at it and go, yeah, that's a guy. You can tell that's a guy. But it was totally believable. And I really, really liked it. So uh, I did. You know I did. I'm your number one fan. I told Robert I'd read his (laughs) grocery list. (laughs) I would. I really would. And he got three packs of double, double stuffed Oreos. What a read. I loved it. It was great. Anyway, so Robert, um, you went on with this book. And you said it you did tell me that it just kind of came out like it was there and it just was like, you know, pronto kind of thing and much easier than a biography for you, right?
2: No, 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 I won't say no, it wasn't because you still have to do the same level of research and you still have to create a plausible story that holds together. In a sense, it's harder because, you know, this is my first historical novel it's my first historical fiction and so it took my editor like banging on my head no 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 you're not writing biography you're writing fiction you know your narrative has to be different it's crafted differently and after after a while it was like oh oh okay i get it now and i would lapse less and less into my usual you know biographical voice
1: but you were, you know, what? something that really interested me and I, I had no idea about was Dooley Wilson. And I didn't know he was a last minute choice. So why don't you tell everybody, I think they'll be surprised as well, who they were thinking to cast as Sam, not Sam, but play it against Sam.
0: Yeah. Uh,
2: well, yeah, Dooley came along. It was a great source of consternation in pre-production. It's like Who are we going to cast? Clarence Muse is the, the go to actor at this time for parts like this. Um, but he was sort of stigmatized. You know, he was, he was seen, he was overseen. And then they wanted to make, uh, Hal Wallace had this great idea to make Sam a woman. Uh, and he wanted Hazel Scott for the part. And then he wanted, and Hazel Scott, who was just like, you know, a human dynamo, gorgeous, gorgeous. gorgeous. oh my, incredibly talented mm-hmm. concert pianist who would knock everybody's socks off, but nobody would see Bogart. Plus you, then, you know, you're going to lose part of the South. And that was another back and forth that they had, uh, in the administration building is like, well, um, you can't make this a main character. This, this can only be comedic support where you're going to lose the South because, you know, um, blacks should not be talking to whites as equals and they certainly can't be seen as equals. Well, so, I mean, like that's why Sam plays today as a character because he was so far ahead of his time. He was such a gamble at that point in history. And I, and I, it was very important for me to show as best I could because I'm not black, show Sam's point of view and the courage it took the production team to make him who he was, who you see on screen.
1: Yeah. He was no step and fetch it or, you know, the, the maid, you know, he was really good. He was his pal, Rick's pal, real true friend. And he was really good. Even though his part wasn't humongous, it's so important. And it was such, he was great. I can't see it being a woman. That woman was gorgeous. I got to say, what a, what a, a cutie. But um, they made a good choice. Also, I loved how you used Claude Rains. I have such a soft spot for Claude Rains. And he wasn't big in it, but you had him like this imp that he was. Because he was a little ladies' man imp. And um, I talked to Jessica Rains, and she is so down-to-earth and adorable. And um, I loved that. All of it. You know, you just caught – I felt it was real. You know what I mean? I didn't feel that you were making it up. You know, I felt – Uh, How do you explain it? I just felt it was so true and um, interesting, frankly. Good.
2: Well, you know, for me, um, authentic characters, they have to be authentic. You know, you have to get into each individual character. So they're all there. Claude Rains is the laid back, alcoholic, sort of ladies, man, Adorable. who's just happy. He wants to, you know, he would like nothing more than to be back in Pennsylvania on his farm. And you've got Conrad Veidt, who is this charmer, who Irene is gaga over. I love him too. Who, yeah. Who, um, who has fled Germany, you know, one step ahead of, uh, of, uh, Nazis because his wife is Jewish And you've got Peter Laurie, the Hungarian who is uh, hooked on morphine and is just morose. Um, but he's Bogart's friend. And you've got Bogart himself who is, um, like put upon and just the, just sort of unhappy in his life and married to an alcoholic um mayo yeah and got Sydney green street i mean come on sydney green street at the beginning of his hollywood career uh had just come off the maltese falcon and just this charming you know bon vivant
1: <laughs> i like that word he is perfect at,
2: yeah so you know it's it's a terrific cast of characters and there's one that I don't know if you want to touch on or not, but Alice Danziger, who was the Epstein's uh, secretary.
1: I love her. I told you how much I loved her. Yeah. She never married, right?
2: No, she never did marry. Um, At key moments, she comes in and sort of saves the day. She's the voice of reason. She's the creative one, even though, you know, she's the secretary of the Epsteins. She's still a key character. I wanted to represent all of those women behind the scenes, and they were mostly women behind the scenes at Warner Brothers. They were taking dictation. They were sending and receiving memos. But they were creative, too. You know, it's not like the, the guys had all the creativity and the women didn't. So um, she is representing that force behind the scenes.
1: I loved her. And I, you know, didn't she live with her parents? I'm trying to, she lived with her parents. She was just a nice girl. And a lot of times these executives rely on these secretaries and they give them, they give them the lowdown, like, listen, pal, you know, and they do, they depend on these women. And I just really liked her character. I told you that. I thought she was a really good character and she's true. And the Epstein brothers, was it their grandson or their son that uh, read your book and they loved how their uh, father uncle was represented yeah
2: that was phil epstein's son leslie who is a, a writing professor you know that's kind of intimidating you sending your um advanced reading copy to a, a boston university writing professor but it, it turned out he loved it and his feedback I and mean, he took a red pen to it i mean what more could you want uh but generally he loved it he thought the interpretation of his father who died when he was 10 years old of like this freak cancer. Phil Epstein died in like 1952 of this freak cancer that came on suddenly and took him. And then Leslie went to live with um, his uncle, Julie, the other twin. And so he he knew Julie all the way through Julie's remaining life. And so if anyone could say whether I got the characters right or not, it was Leslie, and I got his blessing.
1: Huh. Well, they were good. They were charming. They were funny. Um, I liked it. Vulnerability. I really liked it, Robert. It, I, I told you how soft I well, liked them. I loved her. <laughs> I liked them all, basically. Who is the one I also, I'm trying to think? Oh, the woman who Claude Rains uh, wants to have sex with and help her perhaps with her passport, the newlywed. That's Warner's stepdaughter, right?
2: Yeah, well, Joy Page. Joy Page is also, you know, uh, you know, presented for really what she was this poor girl who wanted to get away from her crazy mother and her crazy stepfather, um, and and embark on a life on her own. And this was her way, her way to do it, which was to get cast in this picture, get cast in other pictures, and escape. Um, and so, I really, I had to cut her part down because I was told your narrative is too long. You know, you got to cut some things out. So um, Joy Page lost some scenes, but she's still in there and she's still important. Another one who got lost in the cutting, ended up on the cutting room floor, was Michelle Morgan, who was the first choice to play Ilsa. When uh, Lois, the American in the play, became Ilsa, the European um, Michelle Morgan, who was new from France, was, you know, she was the one who sort of knocked Hal Wallace's socks off. But she was too expensive. So it comes down to, all right, we can't get Michelle Morgan because she's fifty five thousand. We can get this. Uh, we can get Ingrid for twenty five thousand. We'll go with Ingrid.
1: And she loved it. And and but Bogart wasn't too crazy about it, right? He wasn't really into doing it because he was going through all that stuff with Mayo and he was kind of grumpy, grumpal still skinny during that.
2: He was. He was grumpy. And uh, and Hal Wallace had to point out to him, look, you wanted a pictures. This is it. This is your a picture. I saved it for you. You're not second choice this time. You are first choice. But Bogart was just kind of. Grumpy. I mean, Grumpel Skilskin's right. That was just his personality, and he really was uncomfortable playing a romantic lead because he didn't see himself that way. Um, and it, which is funny because he's like in this picture, the ultimate romantic lead. It's sort of casting against type. That's what you get with Bogart in Casablanca.
1: Also, they had Paul. Uh, Henry, how do you say his last name? Henry, Henry, Henry. Henry. I said it right. I had his daughter on the show and, um, but he was doing now, he was going back and forth now Voyager into the other one, into Casablanca. He got some really good gigs. I got to say, and he also escaped from Germany or wherever he was. I don't know what he is.
2: He was Austrian and um, and UFA wanted to sign him. But if he signed there and that's, you know, that's in the book because I wanted to establish his character as pretty heroic because UFA tried to sign him. And so he's sitting down there. He goes all the way to their offices. He sits there. He's ready to sign. And then he pulls out another document and it says, what's this? And oh, well, that's nothing. It's just that you you sign that to attest that you were, you know, in the union of Nazi performers. No big deal. And he wouldn't do it. And he had to flee the country because he was put on the bad list and uh and so but he you know he's very haughty and um and imperious, yeah. Yeah. And, and he turns down Casablanca because it's not a big enough part. He must get the girl in his American <laughs> films. That's what Lou Wasserman, his agent had, had said, I'll get you. Of course you'll get the girl in every picture because they needed European leading men. You know, Paul Henry was, was sort of a unicorn. You know, if you couldn't get Jean Caban, you could get Paul Henry. So, you know, he's another character that I really needed to understand so I could present him accurately.
1: Yeah, you know, I wasn't really crazy about his character. And I guess it's just part... Of, I just am not a huge fan of Paul Henry. That's just the thing. He does fine, but, I mean, he's just not... You know, like, he's not my Claude Rains or the, that cutie, Conrad fight, <laughs> who also died very young. He died very young, too. And he played yeah. Nazis all the time. He fled, and he always played. He was great playing the bad guys. He was wonderful.
2: Yeah, and... and um It's interesting with Veidt that he wanted – and that's I say that he says this to Irene and he says it to Hal Wallace over lunch at the Brown Derby that the reason that he's happy to play Nazis is because he understands the evil. He was there. He saw it, and he wants to show the world the evil of these people.
1: He was perfect. He showed it. He was just – icy and he was wonderful. I really liked him as an actor big time. And he was a charmer. He was a little flirty dirt, (laughs) wasn't he? He was very charming.
2: Well, one of my favorite scenes in the book is, is this lunch where Irene is just like, crazy about Conrad Veidt and she's sitting across from him and she's flirting with him and and it's really a tight two shot the way I present it and then you sort of pull back and realize that Hal Wallace is there too and Irene is doing her best to ignore Hal Wallace until he kicks her under the table I mean that's how she felt about Conrad Veidt
1: I don't get I, I don't blame her I've been the same way I would have been swooning yeah. blinking my eyelashes and hoo, 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 hoo. yes I would have I lo- I just that was so cute. And the whole thing, also, Irene was from the Bronx or Brooklyn. She was a New York girl. Her parents lived in the Bronx. Was that it? Who are we talking about? Irene. She was a New Yorker. I, uh, no, Pittsburgh. She oh, was Pittsburgh, a Pittsburgh girl. That's right.
2: Like me. Like I, where I'm standing, about 10 miles away is where Irene Lee grew up in the shadow of the steel mills.
1: Pittsburgh, PA, and she didn't have a great relationship with her parents. She did, in this book, fall in love, and it's true. The man she (laughs) fell in love with was for real.
2: Yeah, and she had, you know, Irene Lee's uh, very interesting in that she spent the 1930s dating creatives from Europe, like uh, Ernst Lubitsch was one of her guys. Um, there were some big band leaders, and there was uh, Ruben Mamoulian was her big, one of her big affairs. Um, this was like in 1940. So she's, she's very jaded. By her early 30s, she's very jaded. She meets this man named Aaron Diamond in New York City, and you know he asks her to marry him on their first date. And that is absolutely true.
1: They were watching she did uh, meet something. Aaron right?
2: at this time in her life in New York, and uh, he asked her to marry him on their first date, which terrified her. She was sure he was a psycho. Wow!
1: Well, uh,
2: and and, uh, and so you know you follow that story thread, which then turns out to have an impact on production of Casablanca,
1: yeah. and it's true. And that's all true. And they did. They watched. uh, What was it? They were going into war. They watched the speech together or something. Um, Some big thing on TV that everybody was watching and they watched it together. And he was he was her dreamboat. So you're thinking if there's sequels to this, you're going to concentrate on her as well. Right.
2: Actually right now I'm writing the prequel because my my thought all along once I had this thing um and it started to develop and it had all these interesting characters is why not create a Marvel universe of of these people from this time in history at Warner Brothers.
1: Marvel and, Universe, oh my. <laughs> yeah. You
2: know, these different storylines and yeah. they intersect and they overlap but they're they're separate too. So I'm writing the prequel right now, and that's focusing on Errol Flynn mm-hmm. and Errol Flynn in 1940 and 41, and also Warner Brothers, um, the Maltese Falcon, which was another one that Irene Lee was instrumental in. She was the story editor at Warner Brothers. So she was the one who secured this, found the story. She scouted them out. She found them. She negotiated for them. Um, and the Maltese Falcon, of course, had been made in the '30s
1: a couple times. Ricardo Cortez, people, right? One of them.
2: Yeah, and so it's it's a chance to really explore other interesting people, like John Huston. Come on, like if you can figure out John Huston. Yeah, that's pretty um,
1: good. And he was a little imp then, big time imp. And also to get behind, uh, uh, Robert has written books about Errol Flynn, and I loved both of them. I read them. And um, so you kind of get to give him dialogue, right? Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah, um, so this is the time of, of his life when his best friend was a Nazi. <laughs> Urban, Urban was a um a card-carrying member of the Nazi party who comes back to Hollywood in 1938 and then again in 1940. And then, as you may recall, there was a book written about Errol Flynn as a Nazi spy, mm-hmm. Charles Chaim's mm-hmm. book. And this is an opportunity to tell what really happened because Higham was making things up. And I tried to buy Chaim's book and and read it, but there were so many falsehoods that I couldn't even use it as source material. I just had to – I literally threw it out yeah. because it's, full, it's just full of, of spurious claims that have no basis in reality. So I get to tell the real story of this time period in the guise of historical fiction, and and it's going very well. And I uh, reintroduced Irene Lee, and now she's dating Mamoulian. So this is actually before she finds true love.
1: I love, I can't wait to, because I do, I find Errol Flynn so interesting. And I loved your book. I love the ghost stories, the whole thing. You met Nelson, for goodness sakes, the twin brothers. And, um, uh, but this book, I, I can't wait to read the prequel. Anyway, this book is really, I mean, we talk about Charles Higgum. He, he wrote so many books and his books are more fiction. Yours is a historical fiction, which is true. So much of it is true. And yet his books are supposed to be, Nonfiction, yet there's so much fiction. And uh, that's good you're going to be telling that because I don't want to, you know, be mean about it. But let's face it, you can really write pretty much anything about people who are dead. So, you know, everybody's gay. Everybody's this. Everybody's that. And who's going to say no, right?
2: Amen, Grace. You know, it's easy to. And that's why it's, you know, I feel like I have a responsibility to these people. I don't care if they're alive or dead. Mm Mm-hmm. I have a responsibility to be authentic to these people. I have to live up to them and what they achieved. They may have flaws. Absolutely. You know, um, Julie, Julius Epstein was not everybody's cup of tea. He was very brash. Um, he was hard edged. He could insult you. He was, but he was still a tremendous talent and a, you know, a good guy. And so you got to capture all that and not superimpose your own ideals on these people. Or another thing you have to be careful of is when you're writing 80-year-old stories is to be true to the times and the way people thought at that time.
1: Yeah, and exactly like you do with uh, Dooley Wilson, you know, what that was and not having the woman in and coming together like that. You know, and people want to say, oh, we should ban movies from that time because of the stereotypes. You can't. This is history. That's what it was. You know what I mean? Unfortunately. But that is what it was. And you can't destroy movies because of that. You can't. That's my opinion.
2: No. So, No, I agree. I agree. Because <laughs> you can certainly interpret it. You can put uh, a plaque with it that says, <laughs> okay, this is a Confederate statue in the middle of a southern town. But... This is when it was placed here, and this is why. Uh, And you could leave it rather than tear it down. It's the same thing with Gone with the Wind. Must you ban it? Must you ban Yankee Doodle Dandy because there's blackface in it? Or do you position it? It's like this is a chance to teach you about culture of that time.
1: Yeah, I hate those stereotypes. I hate the step and fetch it stuff. I hate, you know, the, the, what's-her-name, the, I, I know nothing about birth and babies, that whole thing. And I hated that. And, and, but, you know, you're doing it. You have the, the Nazis, you have all this stuff coming up at this time. There's so much happening in that period. It's humongous. And her getting that together, getting all these guys together, and they were writing constantly, right? When did, when did they finally have everything done to, to shoot the movie? Cause they were doing it up to the last minute.
2: Um, the script writing was the big problem is that they could not figure out a plausible ending. Like, how do you, how do we, we have written ourselves into a corner Mm here. Why would this woman leave? Why would Bogart let her leave? But, you know, it was like cracking the, the hardest code in the world. Uh, and, and they, and they did it and then they redid it and then they redid it. The the paper count must have been staggering. Um, and, and it took, it took to the very, they had run out of things to shoot and, and they're at the airport. They're ready to shoot the airport sequence, uh, with no final script. And that is so dramatic. I mean, you know, careers are on the line. Um, they haven't slept. The brothers have fought. Um, and, and they, and it came together and, and it's, it's just, my hats off to these people for pulling it out of the fire at the last minute. That and, ending? And the, Perfection. That, my, Perfection. Oh, my God.
1: Yeah. I love that ending. Her, him and Claude, Bogie and Claude. Was it true that it came from Irene's husband? Or is that just in the book?
2: Well, he, all right. So he influenced one of the key lines. That's the way I interpret it. He influenced one of the key lines. Uh, and you know, it was because of the very honest speech he made to her. Don't be scared. I mean, wh- what we have is real. Don't be scared. And and a little bit of that made it into the final story conference that resulted in the dialogue that you see on screen,
1: which is honest to God, they couldn't have picked it better. It just was perfect. I really do think it was a perfect ending more than the movie was really great. But if they had a different ending, it, it just wouldn't have been. As good and Claude and and Bogart had such a great um, chemistry. They were perfect, and Claude was such an imp. He, it was just really good. I loved that, and um, and you explain it well why she had to leave with Paul Henry. And he was happy, Paul. But uh, did Bogart care that he wasn't going to get the girl?
2: I can't tell you that. I don't know. I don't know if he was happy or unhappy. What I will give Bogart great credit for is that so they deliver the script like at nine o'clock at night and he's got to shoot at seven in the morning. And you know what those speeches were like. So the first day he's got to start delivering these mammoth speeches that have been tweaked and aren't the same speeches that he had memorized. And to see how he did that and he's looking into her face in close up, there's no way he's reading few cards. He nailed it. And uh, I have such respect for an actor who can do that under those
1: conditions. He was great. He was really good. He was Rick. He really was Rick. I I know Ingrid was a lot taller than him and. He had to stand on boxes sometimes, and that doesn't make you feel good. He wasn't too happy about that, but you can't blame him. It kind of is like, oh, my God, I go to work and I have to stand on a box to kiss Ingrid Bergman. But he did. and uh, But he wasn't like Alan Ladd or something like that. He wasn't that. But Ingrid was about five foot ten, I think, and probably his height. But that was one of the things he wasn't too crazy about. That's for sure. But he married the Bacall. She was taller than him, too. What a cute couple they are. Um, did you like this movie as much as you do now? Was this like your, one of your favorite movies prior to writing the book? Because it is the anniversary, right? It was 75th anniversary or something?
2: Yeah, it's the 80th anniversary this year. Um, it's a movie that I like better every time I see it. I've probably seen it, I don't know, 10 or 12 times, once on the big screen. Um, yeah, it, it's a favorite in the sense that... When you hear those certain lines, you you can see it 10 times, but you still don't see some of those lines coming because they're so brilliant. And that was sort of the germ of the idea of this whole book is like, who did that and how did they do it? And it and wasn't it was easy the in most cases. No. Well, it was easy for the Epsteins that some of those lines, you know, and then um, like the waters, what waters were in the desert, you know, that line. And um, and some of the others were were Epstein, pure Epstein. But how Wallace realized, well, they're too it's too funny now. You know, this is serious stuff. This is Europe at war. This is occupation of of. You know, this is Nazi incursions. This is refugees in desperate straits. And the Epstein's are like, well, you've got to have some humor. Why would anyone go see something so serious? But they had to find a balance. So they had to find other writers. They had to find a political idealist to come in and tone down some of the humor. They had to find a romantic expert to come in. Really? I don't remember.
1: Romantic expert? Oh, because I didn't write romance kind of thing. They weren't romance writers.
2: Yeah, the Epsteins were were best known for adapting stage plays for the screen, like the man who came to dinner, you know, stuff that was, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of superficial and uh, cheap laughs. You know, they, <laughs> they could write cheap laughs. But um, sophisticated stuff was a little outside of their wheelhouse. And so, like, Howard Koch had – had written War of the Worlds for the radio, and then he had come and written The Seahawk. You know, he, he hadn't written The Seahawk, but he rewrote The Seahawk and, and put some history into it, and then he wrote The Letter. Uh, so he was, he was a different animal than the, than the Epstein brothers.
1: They weren't too happy, though, right? They, they, they felt that they were being usurped in some ways.
2: They wanted to not like him
1: coming into their
2: project, but it really happened all the time, you know. It, it, this is studio system, so you know they have a stable of writers, and if they want to put this writer with that writer, they do it. Um, and, and and the Epstein's pretty quickly saw that. Oh well, yeah, you got some. You're making some good points. You read our stuff, and you're making good points, and you're making some improvements. But like in succeeding generations, when Casablanca became what it became, then everybody wanted to take sole credit for it, and downgrade what the other writers had done. You know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of rewriting of history happened in the seventies and eighties.
1: Yeah. And now it's, I think I, you know what, I think I've only seen it once just looking at it straight through. Isn't that funny? I have to look at it again. My, I have a friend who writes for TCM, and um, she was. Uh, they, they showed it on the big screen, Casablanca, during the um, film festival. And she was sort of like me, like, eh, I never, you know, didn't do it for me. I didn't get it. And she watched it on the big screen, and she said, I get it now. Seeing it on the big screen, it was totally different than watching it on the television, which is true. You see these things, and it's bigger than life. Grand, grand, grand. So I have to watch it again, because I will definitely... Um, know all this behind the scenes stuff and it makes it a lot more fun and much more, you become much more observant about stuff.
2: Well, I'll tell you this. When I first saw Casablanca, I was in the exact same camp. I was like, I don't get it. Well, you know, it's good, but I don't get it. But every time successively that you watch it, you get more. And pretty soon you're like, oh my god. (laughs) This is fantastic.
1: Yeah, so I'm looking forward to watching it again. I think it's always on um, HBO Max. They have the TCM kind of thing there. And I think that's like the Wizard of Oz and Casablanca are, are always on that. So I do have to watch it again. I keep saying I'm going to watch it again, and I haven't watched it again. And I know I will watch it again, and I will like it a lot more. I mean, them getting up and singing the song, that just gives you chills, you know, with the Nazis and they're doing the thing and they all get up and sing. Um, that's a great scene.
2: It is, and it really establishes everything you need to know about um, Victor Laszlo. Um, it's Paul Henry's big scene. And uh, they wanted to give him like Howard Koch, the writer who came in, one of the writers that came in, wanted to give him the underground meeting. So the, the one of the big plot points is they you know, the, the good guys go to an underground meeting and then the Nazis break it up and they come back to Rick's. Uh, but it was like, no, you know, you can't tilt this picture to Henry in the last reel. You can't do that. So they, they cut that scene. And because they cut it because they've already got the Marseillaise scene where everybody stands up and sings. It's the best scene in the picture.
1: It really is. That and the ending, to me, are really just amazing scenes. And I don't know, did you think Bogart and um, Ingrid were such a great couple?
2: What do you mean? You mean... Did
1: you buy that they were so madly in love? Um...
2: Yeah. 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 Um, I thought he was pretty authentic. His character was pretty authentic to the guts of the stage play that he's he was shattered by this woman leaving him. And you could sort of hide his character behind that. So he believed it so intensely, like in the scene where, you know, Ricks is closed for the night and he's drinking and it cues the flashback you know you do believe that he is just in pain over this woman who went away oh now she's back great now i got to deal with this um from her perspective i do buy it i do think that you know we don't always fall in love with the people we're supposed to
1: <laughs> oh i don't mean it in that way about physical i just mean their chemistry together You know, acting. I didn't mean that because I think he's cute. You know, I think Bogart's cute. He's got such a distinctive flair. And Ingrid's Ingrid. So it's not about, you know, that they're mismatched looks wise. I just mean as actors, you know, doing their thing. I'll have to say it again because, like I said, I only saw it once straight through. So Wow. Yeah, just once.
2: Yeah. Just yeah, once. You
1: gotta, I have yeah, to. And now, I, yeah. you know, having read this book and getting all the back stuff on, I wish I could see it on the big screen. I was gonna, but I wasn't able to go. But um, I'll watch it on a small screen. I might watch it this weekend. A nice couple glasses of vino in Casablanca. Sounds like heaven. Yeah, exactly. It does. And I think I'm going to do it because I know I will get more out of it this time, big time. And, you know, I just remember dribs and drops, the ones I really remember is with Sam, what I, I love, Paul. I love um, Peter Laurie with Sydney Greenstreet. I think they're adorable together. And I just happen to love uh, Peter Laurie. I just love him. I just, something about him, I just want to give him a big hug and go, it's okay, Peter. It's okay. You're, yes. I love him. Those sad eyes, they're so horribly sad. But he and, um, Sydney have a really good chemistry together I think they're really good and Bogart I think Bogart and uh, and Claude should have gotten married I think their chemistry was really good Um, I loved it all it it just is a good movie but I have to see more and the book honestly I loved you know that I wouldn't You know, I did tell him something that, you know, I just gave an opinion on something. I was honest, but, and I don't lie. You know, everybody, someone said to me, am I getting any profit? Like I'm advertising your book. I'm not advertising. I don't get a penny. You know, this is what we do. He comes on as a guest for me and I talk about his book. I don't get a penny. I get 10 cents. No, sir. (laughs) Right, Robert? I don't get anything. I'm not advertising you on a billboard. I don't get paid for it. And honestly, everybody, I get a lot of books. And there are people, and they're not bad books, but they just don't fit for the show. So I really do only have people on whose books I do like. And I love all of Robert's books. They're amazing. I will link you up to his stuff. Because if you haven't read it, there are so many great, great, great bestsellers, Robert. Best sellers. That's pretty good. <laughs> Can you hear me? I always thought so. I yeah. think it's amazing. I think it's wonderful. And they're good. Cool. There are. I mean, I love these books. And really, when I heard, I, I'm asking, what's your next project? This was, I don't know, a few months ago or before this. And you told me what it was. And I'm like, man, not a biography. I was kind of like, wow. You know what I mean? <laughs> I wasn't really, it was surprising. I was surprised. Other people well, were surprised, right? Yeah,
2: yeah, and and it's a gamble. I mean, like, taking this turn's a gamble. I'm starting over, you know, and that's kind of weird. But what I appreciate with you is the fact that I know you read and enjoyed the book because of the way you talk about it. I mean, like, I know when somebody hasn't taken the time to read the book. I know it. I mean, I just, you know, because of the way they talk about it. But the way you talk about it means a lot to me because— you digested the book. you got it, you know, and that's all any writer can ever want.
1: I do. I read it. You know, a lot of people don't read people's books. I truly do. And like I said, there are a lot of books. These people write really nice books, but they don't go for the show. And so I really don't put people on that. I, I don't enjoy the books. And I've loved every one of Robert's. And I'm so looking forward to your Errol Flynn kind of backstory. Does Rini have a crush on him? Oh, no, she's with Reuben at that point. That little—and I mean, she's too old for him, let's face it. Right? <laughs> well, <laughs> Chippies? yes and no.
2: <laughs> she had a pulse, so— <laughs> True. <in that> sense,
1: <laughs>
2: no. Our you know, Tasmanian
1: devil, for huh? He's such an—I'm yeah. looking—I'm yeah. th- mm, reading Cortez too. I mean, you have all that stuff there. I'm, well. I'm just—
2: another nice thing in like in in exploring the Maltese falcon is it gets me back with sydney and peter uh and mary astor who's another really interesting character to get inside the head of you know
1: her so. love letters that trial how embarrassing exactly
2: i <laughs> <Exactly. laughs>
1: was so um wow we kasaui and uh, i don't know but i like mary astor i think she's a really good actress i don't know you know i'm i am a person who's I will, compared to Casablanca, I really am not a big fan of the Maltese Falcon. For some reason, I'm watching it. I'm like, okay, this is supposed to be great. I saw it once again, only once all the way through. So I'll have to watch it again. But watching it the first time, I'm like, Mary, Mary's a little over the top in this and whatever. And I didn't really get the big thing. But I have to watch it again because it's been a long time.
2: Well, if you ask me, she's the weak link. You know, she's just not. I just think she was a little bit miscast. I do too. But, she was over the top a little bit. The writing of that thing and the acting is just absolutely brilliant. And it's another one that the if I see part of it, if I come in in the middle, I gotta watch to the end every time.
1: Yeah, I haven't turned it on, and I watched it one day. I, I was, I think, I was with my ex-husband were watching it, and I said, "Let's watch this," because I really have not watched it. Everybody says how oh, great it is, and both of us like, eh? but. That was a long time ago. I will watch that again as well, because um, I know it gets so much press. I did you ever see the one with Ricardo Cortez?
2: I did not know <laughs>
1: Betty Davis is in that as well. Betty Baby, early Betty, and uh, it's okay. It's different, but the same. <laughs> you know what I mean? Remakes, remakes, sh- me makes. Um, this. Anything else you want to tell us about this book? Because I think it's, you know, it is, you know, everybody, he, he really, as he always does, um, he's, he's just so good with his, you have to look everything up. You, you, what, what do we call it? I'm blanking here. Well, you, it's not like you said, you don't make things up. You really have to make things right. Real. You have to, um, what's the word? I am blanking. You know what I'm talking about? Looking for the facts, you have to research research, yeah ding 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 ding, thank you, Robert <laughs> like, all right, already, would you get research, come on, grace, anyway, yeah, you have to, and you did, and like you said it i i didn't know it would be much harder doing it that way. I thought it might be easier, but this was you no
2: didn't... because you can't you can't you can't get something wrong, that, True. you know you break the spell like if you get. Because, and that's one of the beautiful things about the people who have read it so far is that they say, I can't tell where history leaves off and fiction begins. I can't, I feel like I'm a fly on the wall. I mean like, oh wow, that's fantastic. Okay, you got it. You know, so it's you like said. It's the same. It's the same way, like when you write a book about Jimmy Stewart in combat in World War Two and history buffs are going to read that, you know, World War Two buffs are going to read it. If you get one thing wrong, man, you have ruined the book in their eyes. Oh, please. One thing wrong. One bit of terminology. You know, you get <laughs> so the pressure was on man and it gets you used to the fact that you better get it right. You can't mess up one thing.
1: And you're not a kind of guy who's going to do that, make things up. And, you know, you're, you can't do that. That's not your character. You're really, that's why you have best-selling books, because they're so good. And you're just not like that. You can't just go, okay, uh, you can't take poetic license. You always research and get it right. And like I said, it is, it doesn't read like a novel, like he said that. It doesn't. And it really isn't. It's historical fiction, but mostly true, mostly true. It's just the dialogue, just the dialogue and a few thoughts. But, you know, you sit there and it's compelling. I think I read it in two days. I read it started at night and I got up in the morning and I finished it. Love it. I did. And it's not a short book. <laughs> it's not no, a, it's 22 wrong. pages. It's got no. a lot of pages. I'm looking at it right here. I love the cover. It's so good. Author of Dutch Girl. Author of all these great books. I love the Jimmy Stewart one. I loved them all. I love Fireball. Poor Carol. It was also good. You you do such great stuff, Robert. And I am thrilled You came on again, number six, ding, 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 another (laughs) winner by Robert Matson. Again, I am his biggest fan. I'm expecting your grocery list in a couple of days, Robert. Please send me your shopping list. And everybody, you want to say anything else about this? Did we cover it?
2: Oh, I think that we've absolutely covered it.
1: Okay. So I am telling you guys, like I said, I do not get money for (laughs) advertising people's books. I do not like everybody's book, and I don't have them on the air. If I do, don't. Eh, Whatever. But I love Robert's books, and that's true. And this book is really good, Season of the Gods, and it's a novel but a historical fiction. Mostly true, honestly. It reads like... Total truth. You're not going, oh, ho-hum, this is, I don't believe this. 100% you believe everything. Chicks, Robert writes them. He knows how to write women. It's very good, Robert. You know I love it.
2: Well, thank you. I mean, it's it's always a pleasure to come on with you, Grace, because you're good for me.
1: (laughs) You're good for me, too, Robert. Robert was so sure that we Zoomed. New you people know I have never done, I would never do a show if I had a Zoom. I do look glamorous, Robert. I do. And Robert, I was watching YouTube, 70s movie of the week, one morning. I'm like, okay, let me watch. And I love 70s movies of the week. And out comes, if you guys know who he is, Christopher George. And I didn't know if you knew who he was. And I'm looking at him and I said, oh, my God, Robert. That's Robert. And so (laughs) I emailed you that morning. I said, do you know who this is? You look so much like him. So if we did Zoom, how could I speak if he looks like Christopher George slash Robert? I would be (coughs) mesmerized. And so would you people. You wouldn't listen to anything he said. Really. You'd be, you know, mesmerized. Right, Robert? Well, you made my day when you said, You, know,
2: <laughs> you look of course like him. I knew Christopher George, but... He's cute. You know, yeah, I, I'll take that compliment any day of the week.
1: Yeah, well, it, it was true, honestly. I'm sitting there and go, oh, my God, he looks like Robert. And, um, yeah, I liked him a lot. I, I knew him from 70s movies of the week. And his wife was going to come on the show, Linda Day George. I was in contact with her daughter, who was booking uh, her mother, who never ended up doing any shows. Her mother decided against it. But... Um, yeah, I'll I liked that. him. So that was Robert. And um, so this book, again, and this wonderful Robert, I'm going to hook you guys up with links for Robert. You can check out all his books, but don't um, don't be put off by the fact that it's a historical fiction because it's, it's mostly true. It's just the dialogue, and it's wonderful, and you will not regret it. Again, Robert, you are my fave. You really are. <laughs> Yes. And thank you. I really am glad you came on. I love having you on. You're welcome anytime. And you're the cat's meow. What can I say?
2: Ah, you're the best, Grace. (laughs) Thank you for everything. Let's talk again soon. You're going to do do
1: it. I know it's going to be a success. I really do. I told you that. I made a huge prediction. Looked at my crystal ball and I said, aha, Christopher George and bestseller. I saw that. I saw that, Robert. (laughs) I did! Anyway, thank you, Robert, and thank you everybody. Season of the gods, Robert Matson, Casablanca, 80th year. Perfect. Thank you, Robert. That was wonderful. Thank you guys. Bye, everybody. Bye, Robert. <laughs>
0: He has a king, feeling good in everything Just like a bird in the spring Gotta let it out, it's my sweetie, can't you guess Wild about him, I'll confess Does he love me? That's why I shout Everybody loves my baby, but my baby Don't love nobody but me, nobody but me Now everybody wants my baby, but my baby Don't want nobody but me, that's plain to see (laughs) but That's <laughs> why everybody loves my baby, but my baby don't love nobody but me. Nobody but me. Oh, Yes am wow, pam am wang pam 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 that, pam 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 but my baby don't love nobody but me nobody but me everybody wants my baby but my baby don't want nobody but me that's plain disease. see my baby loves me One oh one oh everybody loves my baby but my baby don't love nobody but me nobody but me Love my baby and my baby don't love no but me